0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Douglas Bell. Today, we'll be talking with Lou Roberts, the Wharf Distinguished Lucy Abrach Professor and Plannert Boscom Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. We'll be talking to her today about her new book, Sheer Misery, Soldiers in Battle in World War II, published by the University of Chicago Press. Professor Roberts, welcome to the show.
1: Yes, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Um, Lou, would you mind, by beginning the interview, by telling us a little bit about yourself and also how you came to write this book?
1: Sure. Uh, So I've been um, a professor at Wisconsin for almost 20 years, and my work um, in the last three books has shifted to the Second World War. Uh, And I wrote a book called What Soldiers Do, uh, which was about relations between the United States Infantry and uh, French women. Uh, And when I was reading that book, um, or sorry, reading autobiographies for that book, I read a lot of GI memoirs. uh, I noticed that uh, they really were very different from officer memoirs. Officer memoirs are often about strategy, military strategy, tactics, uh, you know, uh, the the sort of logic of the battle. Uh, and the infantry memoirs I read um, were uh, very different. They were very embodied. Uh, it was really the story was really about, um, the senses, uh, seeing, hearing, smelling. Uh, And it was also about physical discomfort, being cold, being hot, being dirty, um, having uh, wet feet uh, and wounding, uh, all these things. Uh, So I thought, well, I'm going to write a history of the body uh, in the war. Or, more precisely, the somatic experience of of infantry. Uh, And I decided to do it broadly. So I read memoirs and autobiographies of British, German, French, and American soldiers. Um, There are less French and German soldiers, I noticed, because. a very complicated reasons. The Americans are obviously the biggest whiners. Uh, the British come in <laughs> second, but the German uh, memoirs were mostly on the Eastern front, only about 20% on the Western front. I was doing Western Europe. Uh, and they did not have so much uh, complaints about them. Uh, mm-hmm. Remember at this time, I'm writing 44, 45, the Germans are losing really badly and um, so I didn't find as many in Germany. And for the French, you know, I literally went through and read every single memoir in, in the Library of Congress, mm-hmm. uh, but they're also less um, less miserable because I think in 44, 45, the French infantrymen really wanted to prove his courage, having had experienced defeat in 1940. Uh, so there were some physical stuff, but it was really more about honor and courage and and things like that. So uh, it was interesting how the embodied experience in the memoir uh, was measured by many different things. Uh, Obviously, German culture versus American culture, German stoicism, uh, but also who was winning, who was losing, who had lost and who had won. Uh, So I just did all four. Um and uh, that was how I came up with uh, the book.
0: Yeah, great. Well, it was really fascinating. I thought there were some wonderful insights into the book. Thank um, you. So, uh, you start by looking at the senses and what the senses meant. So, in the first one is is sound. So, what what were the sounds that soldiers heard on the battlefield, and how did they how did it make them feel, or how did they describe them?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, the hearing was the most important sense on the battlefield because uh, uh, in, a, in a, a war in which artillery uh, is a crucial place and artillery positions are out of sight and being determined by location, to see the enemy was to be vulnerable to the enemy. So the sounds of war became really more important than they had in other uh wars and and the reason was that it became a way sound became a way for soldiers to locate themselves on the battlefield Uh, they could uh they became experts at the sounds of different kinds of weapons uh they knew uh uh in terms of artillery what um what shot is headed right towards them and what was going to go over them uh, they knew about the difference between German machine guns and American uh, machine guns. Uh, they they uh, used them strategically to locate themselves on the battlefield. Um, the noise of war also measured the distance from the front. Uh, if the front was extremely, uh, if you were in a very noisy place, uh, you were close to the front. If you were uh, in a place where you could only hear the war distantly, uh, you were not near the front. So in some ways, noise demarcated the space of the battlefield. Uh, And uh, the artillery that the Americans and the Allies and the Germans used was terrifying in a new way. It was much more powerful um, and much more accurate uh, than uh, similar weaponry in uh, First World War. So it was something soldiers had to get used to. When you first got to the front, it was so noisy that you couldn't sleep. Uh, And uh, only after a while could you learn to sleep with uh, this amount of noise. So in some ways, um, a soldier's tolerance of sound uh, took the measure of his time on the front line.
0: Yeah, great. So one of the interesting things that I liked when you talked about sound was the the ideas of how like um more experienced soldiers passed on the idea of sound to yeah um to newer replacements um how did this kind of uh uh, what do i want to say that i really found that interesting and how this kind of helped build uh, a connection between older and replacement soldiers because you often read about or hear about how replacements weren't fairly welcomed but there was also this uh veterans were trying to you know educate the newer soldiers as they were coming in yeah
1: Yeah, no it's true that in some ways sound helps build community because you know when replacements came on the line uh it was complicated for the veterans and by veterans i mean somebody who's been there three months right (laughs) right um and uh so there was a lot of teaching of sound, uh, uh, you know, teaching younger replacement soldiers, okay, that's an artillery that's coming towards you. Okay. That's an artillery that's not coming towards you, et cetera. Uh, so it created a sense of pride among the veterans, but it also created bonds between replacements and yes. veterans. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So unlike, unlike sound, which had this important survival role and, uh, helped build a this community, um, smell smell didn't really. Um, so what were the smells of war that soldiers often described?
1: Well, uh, there is a difference between sound and smell. And the big mm-hmm. difference was sound told you something was coming and smell told you something had come and gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what most interested me about smell was that it transcribed the chaos of the war Uh, The smell of the battlefront was a combination of cordite uh, and burning flesh. Uh, And so it transcribed uh, the um, cause and effect of violence in that way. So it was a mixed smell, uh, which combined uh, both... um, the smell of weaponry and the smell of its effects, which is, uh, you know, sort of burning flesh. Uh, so that was one whole thing, um, the source of destruction and its effects, uh, the chaos of war. Uh, but there were other smells uh, that were um, infamous. Uh, and people, even now veterans, tell me they understand this, Um One was that we, unlike sound, we don't have a moral stigma which is attached to sound, but we do have a moral stigma that's attached to smell. Um, And it's often been associated with uh, racial uh, and uh, class um, differences. Uh, You know, George Orwell famously said, you know, you can tell the working class because they smell. Mm -hmm. So there was a moral stigma to this, Um, and the worst moral stigma was attached to a very familiar smell on the front lines, which was um, diarrhea, Uh, that many uh, GIs or other Allied soldiers had uh, a terrible problem with their balls. This is when it became, the runs became the GIs, Um, (laughs) and the smell of shit. Uh, was everywhere on the front line and you know men used it to denigrate the enemy like oh those germans smell horrible Mm -hmm. but they also supported each other in the smell you know we we know what's happening you know well some men uh, either had digestive problems or they shit their pants out of fear Um, Mm -hmm. so that was another whole complex of smell uh, that was associated with fear and humiliation but also, again, a source of male bonding. There was yeah. one story where some soldier, American soldier, shit himself in fear. Uh, and his fellow buddies uh, helped him clean up, throw away the underwear, cleaned his pants in the stream, got him all set up, and then they never talked about it again. Um, so it was another way in which community got built, uh, like sound. Yeah, wow.
0: Um, so moving to, to taste, one of the, uh, your focuses on taste is the, is the rations and they were notoriously disliked, but (laughs) you go deeper into not just like that they tasted bad, but you know, what, what the soldiers thought about them and, uh, how they, talked about them to each other, and kind of, again, how they built community around this taste.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's nothing that brings together people than complaining about something, right? <laughs> right. Um, yeah, there were two kinds of rations, K-rations and C-rations, <clears throat> uh, and they were meant to be portable. And then if the soldiers were someplace more stationary, they would have a cook who would, who became a very beloved person. Uh, And they were obsessed with food. I mean, even a a casual glance at some of the soldiers' division newspapers talked about, you know, we had lamb chops last night. You know, there was just an obsession about it. Because when you think about it, if you're living in a foxhole out in the middle of nowhere, uh, you know, no luxury hotel, food becomes really, you know, there's no... Uh, Accepted mode of sexual expression, you know, food becomes a very important source of pleasure, um, perhaps the only one. Uh, So I think it made uh, it more important at the same time as it made it more difficult uh, to eat K and C rations. There were three types of C rations, uh, three different meat kinds. Uh, And, you know, I went and read the quartermaster uh, reports about this, and they said, well, one was not well received. Uh, but it was the one that one GI said something like, you know, only uh, if you're dying of hunger, if you're literally famined or you are completely perversed, only then can you eat it. Um, and, you know, really, I try, you know, we always think about hospital food and army food is generically horrible. <clears throat> so I tried to think of how I could explain um, why it was so bad. And when you think about it, it had to be transported all over the world. So it had to be portable and and, and, uh, it had to be either dehydrated or canned, Uh, none of which is good, right? No fresh food. Uh, And um, also, uh, What the quartermaster people did was they tried to keep it as bland as possible to not offend any ethnic tastes. And they also were not, taste was not actually the ultimate or chief goal. The chief goal was energy. Um, So for example, chocolate bars, Uh, they contracted with Hershey to make chocolate bars, but they made them only as tasteful as a baked potato, quote unquote. Uh, because if they made it as tasteful as a regular Hershey bar, people would eat them up mm-hmm. um, really quickly. And so they wanted them to be less tasteful, so they would eat them slowly. Uh, so those are some of the reasons why the food tasted so bad.
0: Yeah. yeah, that's really, the potato thing was really fascinating. I had not heard that before.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: And it, uh, it really also made me uh, think about some of the things that I had read in uh, And about uh, I wrote a bit about uh, Americans hunting in Germany after World War II, and you find um, stories of them talking about even during the war and their shooting to go try to hunt a deer, and so that they could have something else to eat besides their uh, their rations. (laughs)
1: Yeah. (laughs) Well, some Um, German soldiers that they became prisoners, they couldn't believe that C rations. They complained about them and said, "You know, we need to have the same food as you." (laughs) Conventions, and then the GIs had to say, "Well, you know, actually, this this is is the same." (laughs) (laughs) Believe that actually all ate this food. So, and of course, the French were like when they got the K rations, the C rations, they're like. Abominable, you know so yeah they had a reputation for bad food
0: yeah um so <laughs> let's talk about uh dirt and i like how you begin talking about this by talking about how militaries are obsessed with dirt but can you talk about why they are
1: yeah sure i got interested in bill malden uh mm-hmm. the great world war ii cartoonist uh and it It made me sort of think about the dirty body, which is, you know, Malden was famous for uh, Willie and Joe, these two GIs, American GIs, and they were both completely filthy all the time. (laughs) Uh, So I thought a lot about what that meant, what Malden was trying to do. And uh, it made me uh, I begin that chapter with an argument between Patton and Malden. Uh, and Patton wants Malden's very popular Stars and Stripes uh, cartoon, Willie and Joe, out, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, uh, Eisenhower really believed that the GIS should have some independence uh, in terms of Stars and Stripes. So the upshot was they sent Malden out to meet to meet Patton. And of course, Patton said, you know, uh, you know, if I if that, son of a bitch, enters the third army region, I'm going to kick his ass out. Uh, Mm -hmm. So Malden was, you know, clean to a polish and sent out. Um, And Patton just hated the cartoon because of the men's sloppy, dirty appearance. And he called it treachery. Uh, And You know, lack of discipline, it means basically we're betraying the United States Army and joining with the Germans. Uh, So that conversation really intrigued my curiosity, and I began to think from there um, why militaries are obsessed with cleanliness. Uh, The British, I mean, in some ways, even worse uh, than the Americans. Um, So uh, I went and read sort of military training manuals, uh, and their obsession with third. Uh, and uh, also looking at, again, memoirs and autobiographies that talk about basic training, where how you made your bed, you know, how you had your so-called kit in British terms, you know, your uniform had to be perfect, or it was like, uh, you know, ruined your commander's day. Uh, and I think the obsession... Uh, comes from a number of things. I think it's a way for military commanders in basic training to gain complete control over a soldier's body. Uh, You know, these these manuals talked about, you know, everything from cleaning your scrotum to taking uh, balls at a certain time of day and wiping yourself. And it was clear that the army needed complete um, possession over the soldier's body, because after all, he's eventually going to have to put himself in harm's way uh, at the soldier's command. Um, I also think it's connected to orderliness. Uh, that's a bedrock military principle. Uh, and dirt means basically that something is out of place. Something is disorderly. Um so uh i think it was a a function of discipline and orderliness which are the bedrocks of an army um and i also think that like smell dirt is connected with moral depravity uh and again uh it's a slur that's often used against uh race racial and class hierarchies the working class Mm -hmm. is dirty therefore they smell uh a common anti-Semitic slur was uh, dirty Jew, uh, and also um, prejudices against Africans uh, as, as being dirty in their skin. That's why they were dark. Um, so I think uh, really beginning in the early 19th century in liberal societies, cleanliness becomes my mother was English. She always used to say cleanliness is next to godliness. Uh, mm-hmm. so, so that says it all. Um, right. So I think that's why militaries were obsessed with dirt.
0: Right. So if they're they're obsessed with dirt and Patton wants soldiers to be clean because it shows they're good soldiers and orderly soldiers, how did how did the frontline soldiers come to embrace being dirty, to being Willie and Joe? <laughs>
1: Uh, well, as Bill Malden said, you can't fight the enemy with Queensbury rules. Uh, you know, this is, a, at least in Western Europe, uh, a very dirty, um, you know, operation, mm-hmm. <laughs> military operation. Uh, and, you know, it began really, the dirt dirtiness began in the Italian mountains during <clears throat> the winter of 43, 44. Where soldiers were literally sometimes up to their waists in mud, and they were crossing rivers all the time as well, or they were living in the mountains where uh, even to shave uh, caused uh, them to use water, which was an an incredibly uh, short supply. Uh, So, in the Italian campaign, really was born William. Joe Malden himself was in that. He was a member of the infantry, uh, and he got his start writing. and uh, drawing for the 36th Infantry Division newspaper. Uh, and the 36th was in the muck uh, in 40, 43, 44. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, I think at first the average soldier uh, had a double reaction to this. One, uh, you know, because no commanders were really coming up the mountain. They didn't have to deal with the so-called chicken shit of being perfectly clean all the time. Hmm. And they used the water to drink rather than to wash themselves um, because they knew the commanders were not gonna come up. So there was a kind of, you know, sort of (laughs) subversive element to this. Uh, But I think also because in their culture, in Western culture of both British, Western Europe, and certainly in the United States, again, dirt is connected with moral depravity there was a certain amount of shame these soldiers felt being so stinky and so on and so forth. Uh, And they were seen often as criminals. Uh, One of um, Malden's inspirations was he was in um, Naples and the the soldiers would come for their leave uh, off the mountain and they were so filthy and dirty and smelly that they would be imprisoned for three days. Uh, literally treated as criminals. Um, and then uh, the third day they would shower and get new uniforms and go back to the mountain. Uh, so that connection between dirt, moral depravity and criminality, which is so embedded in Western liberal society uh, was at work. And that was when Malden decided, you know what? I am going to, I'm going to write about the dog face as he called him, that dirty face also mm-hmm. began in Italy Um, And so what I think Malden did uh, that was so important uh, was that he sort of transformed the meaning of dirt. Uh, In his cartoons, the dirty soldier is the real soldier, uh, and the pristine officer is the sissy who hasn't really seen war. Uh, So Willie and Joe become heroes because of their dirt. Dirt becomes in some way the measure of the true soldier. So he turns dirt from a mark of shame and moral depravity to a mark of heroism. He sanctifies dirt, that's what his uh, achievement is. And he finds a way for dirty soldiers to feel good about their their dirt uh, as opposed to ashamed. Um, and so I think that's why the cartoon was so popular. And despite Patton being dead sent against Malden, and Malden mm-hmm. took him on a lot. There mm-hmm. are a lot of cartoons in the book about how Malden takes on Patton. Uh, the The cartoonist was so popular up and down the line; he was conceived as the sort of infantryman's hero. So the cartoon was never canceled. It was never taken away.
0: Yeah, I really like that, and again, this uh, distinction between the real soldier and the, and the commanders behind the lines and yeah. the yeah. descriptions you have of, uh, you know, officers behind the lines buying or trying to get old, beat up uh, clothing so that they can also be uh, a quote unquote real soldier.
1: Yeah, no, it's true. The, you know, like replacements would get on the line and they would feel uncomfortable because their their uniforms were so clean and so You know, they would buy from the infantrymen veterans, you know, these. And and Malden made fun of these, said, and if you can have a jacket with a genuine bullet hole in it, you know, you're going to make a lot of money. Uh, (laughs) So, you know, obviously, of course, it was a loss of control for commanders uh, that suddenly everybody wants to have the Malden look.
0: Yeah. 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 Uh, So. Dirt. One another thing related to to hygiene and dirt was the was the foot and in, in trench foot, and so you really talk especially about how susceptible uh, Americans were to this uh, problem. And can you describe maybe why the the Americans were particularly susceptible to trench foot?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, so trench foot came about in the First World War, uh, and it was seen as a disease of the trenches uh, and the British trenches in particular. Um, and basically what trench foot is, is when you immerse a foot in water for a long time, uh, and it's gotta be water that is not frozen, but almost frozen, cold water. Uh, what happens is your foot starts to lose circulation, uh, literally shuts down. Uh, so the blood no longer circulates in your foot. And so uh, what happens is uh, you get uh, swollen black feet, and then if it gets particularly bad, you get gangrenous feet. And many, many soldiers had to have, um, had to have their uh, feet amputated because of mm-hmm. this. Uh, so that was what happened for the British. So when the British in the Second World War came back, they built incredibly good boots. Uh, they were... Uh, Uh, made of um, leather with leather heels, and they also figured out how to buff them in such a way that they were truly waterproof. Now, this wasn't true of the Americans um, who had never dealt with trench foot in the First World War, uh, mostly because uh, it was a very short deployment, you know, less than six months. Uh, Their boots were, and again, I went and looked at the quartermaster reports on this, as well as personal You know, there are endless personal complaints about the boots. Mm. Um, And even the quartermaster had to admit they were rubber soles rather than leather soles. And the rubber was recycled rubber because rubber was being used for so many other things like Jeeps and and tanks and things like that. Uh, So you had reconstructed rubber rather than leather heels. Uh, And they just leaked like crazy. Uh, They really did. And it's, it's kind of a dirty little secret, you know, when I showed this chapter, it's called The Foot, uh, to some military men. They just did not believe that because the the line on American supply was that there was no problem whatsoever, right. you know, that mm-hmm. the Americans were so well supplied. Um, so there are bad boots. And, you know, really, again, the quartermasters uh, tried very hard to make them better, uh, but failed. Uh and the reason is, rather than redo the boot, they didn't have the materials uh, to to sort of recast the boot. They created sort of like plastic things you put on top of the boots. Mm. Um, but the problem there was that um, it was a it was a, a rear echelon problem. The boots would arrive in the ports, uh, you know, like Naples or later on, you know, in Brittany or Normandy, and those people who had access to these boots would take them. Uh, And so the infantry is off fighting the war are the last to get them. And by the time they got to the infantry, you know, you could get size five or you could get size 16, you know, Mm -hmm. but the average nine, 10, 11, they couldn't get. Uh, And when the army found out about this, it really did make attempts to keep, um, some of the people who were both unloading the ship, but also the officers in the ration from taking them. They literally gave them a quota, uh, And but it didn't work. So oftentimes the galoshes, uh, as they were called, never arrived. Um, so all these things were factors of why trench foot became a problem. And And then one more thing, which is really interesting is that Uh, Unlike the British, the Americans deployed their troops on the front lines for much longer. So, you know, after three days, most British troops were going back, whereas the Americans would be there for weeks or at least Mm -hmm. two weeks. So that just gave the foot longer time to get um, swollen.
0: Okay. Right. And I like how in the book you discuss a lot that this was partly as you just mentioned, a uh, an equipment problem and partly a deployment, how long they were in the lines. But the the generals and the commanders, as they did with hygiene, uh, blamed this on the soldiers themselves. Uh, what, can you talk a little bit about this relationship, uh, like how why they blame the soldiers and what the soldiers are actually going through and why this is maybe a failure more of command rather than Uh, of supply.
1: Sure. Um, Yeah, the the commander's explanation, and here I used um, uh, NARA documents. You know, I actually read things, reports from Patton and other generals uh, Mm -hmm. who were experiencing a lot of trench foot. They thought it was a question of discipline, that the men were not taking their socks off enough or their wet boots. Uh, and that if they only did that, then, you know, so it was a blame the soldier kind of strategy, just to sort of not blame themselves or be blamed themselves. Um, and of course, this absolutely infuriated the GI's. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was one, I think, Time magazine or some large American magazine, which, you know, talked about this, if the soldiers would only take better care of their feet, uh, you know, and and they're, was well when you're crossing a river or you're in a wet trench you know uh how can you possibly do that change your socks and your socks Mm -hmm. get wet right away anyways uh and so one soldier said well you know okay i'll change my socks twice a day and at three o'clock every day i'm going to have milk and cookies too because that's good for (laughs) me you know they just couldn't believe that they were being blamed for this Mm um and one uh Particularly insulting um, editorial, pictorial editorial, in Stars and Stripes, I think, uh, epitomizes uh, their uh, treatment. It was a picture of two feet with a, a gorgeous pinup on them, and it uh, it basically mimicked um, masturbation. Uh, it said, "What I want you to do is to put your feet." In these boots, you're next to this these women, these pinups, which were commonly used for masturbation, and I want you to rub them and rub them until they burst. You know they're so full of blood that they burst. You know, I mean it's hilarious. Uh, So and demeaning. You know that they would use pinups, you know, on a footprint, and expect you know soldiers to cut this out of the newspaper, put them in their boots, and then you know think about the pinups as they're rubbing their feet and rubbing their feet until they're so full of blood that they're, you know, that they're, they're well. So um, the larger point here for me is the a thread that runs throughout the book is the difference between the way command sees the soldier's body and the way the soldier sees himself and his body. For command, I use the notion of manpower. Like when Patton writes about this, his concern is that um, trench foot is going to cause a serious reduction in manpower. And I, yeah. I venture that for someone like Patton, manpower uh, looks at the soldier and the soldier's body as an abstract unit of violent force, okay? Because manpower is like horsepower, right? It measures mm-hmm. uh, energy. It measures force. Right. Uh, and so for many of these commanders, uh, they really saw – the soldier's body as a unit of violent force. And they had to, you know, I mean, Patton, for example, I read his diary and he had to abstract them in order to send them to their death. Uh, That's just what a commander has to do. He can't think too much about the human side of it. Uh, The diary too is Patton going into a hospital and seeing all these injured soldiers and saying to himself, I can't do this too much because... I'll become a terrible commander if I have to think too much about these wounded bodies. Uh, But for the soldier, he's, he's thinking about it from his own perspective, right? From his Mm -hmm. own body. Uh, So trench foot is something which is happening to his body and he's not abstract to himself at all. Uh, So um, there's a clash there between command and soldier and how they're looking at the body. Uh, And uh, uh, that runs throughout the book, uh, the yeah. commander's abstraction of the soldier's body and the, the very embodied experience that the soldier is having.
0: Yeah, I think that comes out really clear. Um, so the trench foot is in some ways kind of like a, a wound that takes you off the line. And in the next section, you you move more into actually looking at at wounds and wounds are you know, just the fact of war. Um, but not all um, wounds come from the from the enemy, some soldiers wound themselves. Um, mm-hmm. so can you talk maybe a bit about the different types of wounds and what what how soldiers classified wounds? And I thought that was all really fascinating,
1: yeah, so um, I did a chapter on wounds because I think that's the most. Um, you know, pain uh, of from wounds, uh, and I, and my experience reading popular military histories is that wounds are always sensationalized, uh, and you know, uh, people like uh, Rick Atkinson will pick the most gory, you know, and his eye came out or his mm-hmm. entrails were all over, you know. It becomes a sort of color rhetoric, yeah. you know, a rhetoric of color in military narratives. But something like, and I did only the British for this chapter, because although I researched the American medical system, I just couldn't do both. So I Mm -hmm. focused on the British. Um, So, but most British, 80% of British soldiers had mundane wounds, okay? Mm -hmm. So I wanted to desensationalize the wound, and I also wanted to think about what it meant to soldiers. Uh, And I quickly discovered that they did, they had a hierarchy of wounds, uh, that they... I think it was a coping mechanism, right? To create, to organize wounds as a way to uh, cope with their danger. And it also became, again, community building. People talked about wounds. So there were two or three wounds you just couldn't get. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, No one wanted to go home without their genitals. Right. That was just like the number one thing. They'd rather die than go home without their genitals. Um, They were really afraid of the burns received by men in tanks. So the way tank warfare would occur, it was very frequent for tanks just to go up in flames if it was hit by an 80 millimeter German 80 millimeter. Mm -hmm. Um, And so then the guys would try and get out of the tank, uh, but they were horribly burned. Uh, So that was a serious uh, fear, Uh, particularly, obviously, people in armor. Uh, And then the other really dreaded wound was blindness. Uh, So I think the other half of this, this really makes it more sense, which is wounds you want to get. Remember that wounds were a ticket off the line. Mm, They were, you know, a way out of the, the line. And getting wounded was hard for some soldiers because they didn't want to leave their buddies. You know, they wanted to keep on fighting. But there are a lot of soldiers who just really wanted to get wounded. But they didn't want to get terribly wounded. Like blindness took too much away.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And every every army had a name for a good wound, a wound that got you off the line. Uh, for the Americans, it was the million-dollar
0: mm-hmm.
1: wound. Typical Americans, Right. <laughs> Right. Uh, and for the British, it was the Blighty Wound. And, and Blighty is a name for London. So it mm. meant you were going to go back to London uh, that, with a Blighty Wound. So everybody wanted a Blighty Wound or a million-dollar wound. Mm. So I just found that really interesting that they wanted to be wounded, but they didn't want to be too wounded. And blindness was too wounded. That made you war's waste, you know, you were, because you would never be able to live a normal life. So Mm -hmm. ideally, you didn't want a wound in your trunk, you know, like a million dollar wound would be an arm, you know, or Mm -hmm. a leg, right? Um, But not your trunk, because uh, that required surgery. And sometimes it required immediate surgery, which was really difficult uh, to get. So yeah, I I think it was a way of organizing danger. Uh, And I found it Mm -hmm. fascinating that they did that. And they sat around and talked about it a lot again, creating a kind of
0: community. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. And I also really enjoyed talking, uh, how reading about how you also looked at how medical personnel in the British military also kind of thought about and communicated wounds. And you write that soldiers became their wounds uh, in going through the medical system. Um, So if you could maybe talk a bit about that process. Sure,
1: like the way the, chapter is structured, I take, I start with how soldiers think about wounds, and then I think of wounding and wounding stories that soldiers tell. And then I show how the wound changes in meaning as it goes into the British medical system. Uh, And it causes a lot of stress in the British medical system because they have to go through the sorting, uh, which is called triage. Uh, which uh, is a French word from the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, And um, there they become their wound in the sense that they're not identified as individuals. Uh, So if you have a head injury, you're a head. And if you have an abdominal wound, you're an abdominal. Um, so, uh, So it's sort of an interesting... Uh, change uh, in terms of how wounds gain meaning. At first, they're very much embodied experiences, but then in the eyes of medical experiences, they're abstracted uh, and you become your wound. You become a head or an abdominal or a leg. <laughs> they literally mm-hmm. call them that, you know, you're a leg. Uh, uh, so I found that was very interesting in how doctors abstracted bodies enough in order to cure them and help them because, again, that kind of personalization is antithetical to good medical care. Um, that's why surgeons never operate on their own families. Right. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, uh, that was the kind of abstraction that went on in the medical system, which I think is a different kind of abstraction of the body that commanders uh, did, but still abstraction.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I also really enjoyed how you talked about, uh, like, with soldiers on the front line in the command that, this the surgeons in London also were not. They kind of looked down on the work done by their colleagues who were in the field under pressure, and you know, that really, I, I thought that also was really the kind of a great link in the book as well. Seeing these
1: yeah, different yeah. places, yeah. That um, okay. There were field surgeons, and then there were like surgeons back in London. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the field surgeons with the process of triage, they have to make really, really hard, cert- you know, decisions: who's going to get mm-hmm. their life saved and who's not. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes they made mistakes. You know, people who could have been saved weren't. And and uh, it really, for them, for those doctors, it was really about um, amount of time it's going to take to cure the wound and versus the possibility of survival. So if they get a man who's very severely wounded, probably won't survive even after four hours of surgery, then they're gonna pass that guy over for somebody else.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then really the surgery that they're doing in a field hospitals is, um, you know, what we we would call crisis care, right? They're just trying to keep the soldier from losing more blood. It's about blood transfusion or plasma transfusions, which mm-hmm. was huge medical advancement in the second world war and fighting infection, you know, um, and it wasn't until December of 1944 that penicillin became available. And even then it was not that available because they didn't know how to make it synthetically. So they had to make it in huge moldy vats, literally that's how they made
0: penicillin.
1: So even though the military had priority, they, you know, so mostly they fought with sulfa drugs. So uh, that was their, you know, their whole goal, field surgeon's goal was save lives and um, stop the bleeding, you know, uh, intensive care to see. And then sometimes they would not even close the wounds because they were not sure that they uh, had gotten everything or cleaned everything out. And so the tut-tut surgeons in London would look on these and say, you know, this is really bad technique and this is really <laughs> bad surgery uh, and we're just going to have to start all over again, you know, and the field surgeons would respond, well, you're just lucky that they're alive still because that's what we did. So yeah. it was this really interesting frontline back rear echelon division, not unlike infantry and commander uh, that, that took shape in the medical system. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, uh, like wounds, the, the corpse, the dead body was, is also just a fact of war. Um, and like the wound, it was also not supposed to be seen. Um, the, the task of burying bodies, and here you talk about the grave registration service in the U S army, um, was one of the main focuses of of this chapter on the, on the corpse. And can you talk about this or part of the the army and what they did. I found this to be really fascinating. I, I wanted a whole book on this. Uh.
1: You just, but yeah. I mean, the interlibrary loans on this chapter were hilarious, you know, <laughs> like memoirs, how I buried the dead. You know, I think the, the librarians thought I'd really flipped out. <laughs> well, so, you know, the, the first chapter is about the senses. The second's about mold and the dirty body. The third chapter is about the foot. the Fourth chapter is about wounds. Uh, and this chapter is about the dead body, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and actually it was the one I wrote first because I, at the same time that I was doing what soldiers do, I got really interested in this whole problem of what do you do with dead bodies? Like, I, mm-hmm. I had no idea. Um, mm-hmm. So I got interested in that first, uh, and then I got interested again in other things about, um, about the body. Um, The Graves Registration Service starts in the First World War. Uh, In the Civil War, there's a wonderful book about it by Drew Gilpin Faust. Soldiers were forced to bury the dead themselves. So Mm -hmm. after a battle, soldiers would bury their friends. Uh, But the amount of death uh, in the First World War, which was a result of the uh, enormous increase in the intensity and destructive power of weaponry meant that there were so many dead bodies in, on the Western Front that they just couldn't cope, um, the British and the Americans, um, with something. So they created an institution that's part of the army called Graves Registration. Um, and so that was, the, that was the agency, the government agency, that would come in after a battle uh, and uh, sweep, as they called it, the battlefield. Uh, and what they meant by that was to clean the bodies and the, I clean the bodies off the field. And the major aim of that was to remove bodies before the next wave of soldiers came along, uh, because they felt that if they saw, you know, hundreds of bodies lying around that it would be, you know, not great for morale. Right. right? Mm-hmm. It would also, you know, increase intensity. So, um, Normandy was a real challenge because, remember, it's an invasion from the sea. uh, And immediately, uh, you know, the beaches, Omaha, Nebraska Beach, as well as the the British beaches, Mm -hmm. are overrun with corpses. Okay, Um, 3,000 people died that one one day. Uh, But they hadn't yet conquered the inland. So they had some idea of where they would, but it was just still German-occupied right So they quickly got behind schedule essentially, right uh, with the dead bodies uh, and um, so this was part of the army uh, which did this task from this moment in Normandy to um, you know the victory in Berlin. Uh, and uh, not surprisingly, it was mostly done by African American soldiers. Mm-hmm. Um, And the reason was, is that first African-American soldiers were not given combat roles. Uh, They did service roles. So this was part of, you know, they did laundry and food and they carried supplies to the front. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this was part, considered part of that service role. Uh, But also uh, in terms of racial hierarchies, they were considered, you know, the ones that were going to do the dirtiest jobs, and there's not much dirtier than picking up a dead body. And yeah. um, so, what did actually they do? They literally put them in mattress covers. Um, and the reason they did that was coffins were too expensive to make, and they took up too much room. Uh, you could put a lot of dead bodies in mattress co- uh, mattress covers and put them on the truck. Um, so, uh, and then the other thing they did uh, before they put them in the mattress covers uh, was that they took away their so-called effects. That was the term for it, their belongings. Mm-hmm. Um, I hate the term because it's so abstract, classically, yes. right? The effects of a body. Uh, and that meant like everything from cigarette lighters and wallets to coins, um, pictures, pictures, uh, People back home, uh, diaries, letters, etc., and those were all sent to um, St. Louis. And the reason it, they were all sent to St. Louis was because the railway system at that point was so strong for St. Louis. Now it, it's it's decayed. Uh, And so they could send things to St. Louis easily from both the East Coast and the West Coast, the European theater and Pacific theater. Mm -hmm. And then they were cleaned at that point. So pornographic stuff was (laughs) eliminated. Uh, Everything was cleaned of blood. And and if they couldn't clean it of blood, they wouldn't send it home. Uh, And then I have read for every soldier who died in the American army, there is a file. Uh, in the military articles for how he died and his effects and so on and so forth. The family had the choice of either having him buried permanently in Europe or bringing him home at the end of the war. Um, So I have that correspondence. And then I also have correspondence from families saying, hey, you know what? We finally got his effects. There's nothing here, you know? Well, the reason was that all along the line, things were getting stolen. Um, Mm -hmm. I you know, uh, commanders, by other soldiers, uh, by graves registration, people in St. Louis. <laughs> so um, so that was the process of burying bodies.
0: Yeah. Um, how did soldiers, the frontline soldiers themselves, uh, understand and make meaning of the corpse as they were, you know, fighting the war? They their friends, their colleagues, their, yeah, their buddies are getting shot. They're also shooting at other people. But so how did they kind of make meaning of these?
1: Um, so uh, actually what my chapter on the, the, the dead body is about, it was originally titled Five Ways to Look at a Body. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about how, what the body meant to all the people who were involved. Um, so for example, for graves registration, it was a job. Uh, they had to figure out, um, oftentimes, German corpses would have uh, prized possessions, like Lugers and, you know, German weaponry and stuff. And they, mm-hmm. the GIs would so often, um, would so often steal those that the Germans started booby trapping the bodies. You know, you take your Luger and you pay for it with your life. So graves registration often had to drag these bodies. Um, and, you know, so that they would detonate before mm. they got close to them. So the graves registration, it was about technique, right? It was a job and it was a humiliating job. It was it was a, a bad job um, for the French, for example. Uh, it was they would look at an American body and they would think this man died for our freedom, you know, so that there were all kinds of really touching tributes made to dead American bodies. Uh, flowers were put on them at great risk. Uh, by French citizens, um, they were very meticulously covered, whereas uh, German bodies would be just left to rot and then children would take everything off of them. Mm-hmm. Nobody ever robbed an American corpse uh, in Normandy. Um, and then for the GIs, it was very complicated. How did GIs think about, um, about these corpses? Uh, and uh, it was a bunch of stuff. Um, I think when GIs looked at the most simple level, when they looked at bodies, they understood the precarity of their own existence on the front. You know, they realized, hey, you know, this is what it came. You know, we're playing for keeps here uh, on the front line. Uh, And it didn't really matter that much if it was a German or an American soldier. You know, they just saw these really, I mean, by 1944, 45, uh, in Normandy, there are, uh, you know, uh, 14 and 15 year olds fighting for Germany. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, soldiers, uh, GIs looked at that and thought, "Geez, you know, this is this is not a good not not a good idea. I got to watch myself." Um, so that was one thing. But uh, the more complicated reaction, uh, and this explains the story I read at the and I wrote, I finished the book with a story was. Um again, there's this uh, tension in the book throughout the thread, which is the theme, is the way in which, again, the army command abstracts the body and the person. Uh, and soldiers themselves saw themselves as people and saw their buddies as people. So there's that conflict between how the army saw them and how soldiers saw them. Uh, and I think when GIs looked at bodies, they thought they thought of that conflict conflict because on the one hand um, if you've ever seen a dead body you know that the person's not there anymore it's a body so it's weird because the person is there but he's not there um Mm -hmm. and uh i think that sort of ambiguity was the ambiguity of how they felt being in the army that they were a person that was there but they weren't there they were sort of an abstracted body uh to the united states army so I end, the sto- I end the book with this story that was incredibly moving to me, um, which was told by a surgeon named Brendan Phipps, who was with the infantry uh, moving across uh, Germany uh, in 1945 at the front lines. And one morning, uh, there is a soldier named Wally who's been shot to death. Uh, and he ha- his body happens to be in the road Uh, And so there's all this, you know, equipment moving forward as the front retreats deeper and deeper into Germany. Uh, And he's by the side of the road waiting for Graves' registration to come and pick him up and put him in a mattress cover and so on and so forth. Um, And uh, a German woman comes over and she spits on the body uh, and, you know, says some insulting thing. Mm. And then that's sort of a breaking point. Uh, for this one infantryman. And he goes and he says, you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna carry Wally and we're gonna bury him. Uh, So like six or seven infantrymen come over and they lift up uh, Wally and they start taking him to be buried someplace. Uh, And of course, command gets involved. Uh, as Brandon Phipps said, you know, this is a wonderful, decent thing, and I'm pretty sure the Army is not going to like it. Sure enough, before, mm-hmm. uh, I can't remember if it was a captain or a lieutenant, somebody came over and said, all right, stop. Uh, you know, you can't do this. Graves registration is going to do this. Uh, and, you know, if you do it, we're all going to, you're all going to be court-martialed. Well, this group of infantrymen are like, Court-martial, sounds good to me, you know. (laughs) I get a good meal, you know, I'm someplace safe. Mm -hmm. And they realized, you know, look, we're just pins on the map to these guys. Uh, We're the real, we're the ones who are making the sacrifice here. You know, these guys are staying back and they're not uh, in the line of fire. And we are. So we're going to do this. Um, And so they continue. And then they uh, get to this beautiful field of flowers, red, white, and blue. Um, and they just lay Wally down in the field and he, his body disappears into the flowers. Uh, and then they all, by, by this time, it's not just six guys. It's like the entire half of the company, 50, 60 guys. Uh, they all say goodbye to him and they say prayers and some, some who knew him came up and say goodbye to him personally. And I think that's a perfect example of what I'm talking about that, They knew that Graves registration would come and, you know, take the dog tag, put him in a mattress cover, take his effects. But it was all very abstract to these guys. Right. It was not Mm -hmm. a person. He was not a person. He was there, but he wasn't there. Right. Just like any dead body. Uh, But they knew Wally as a person. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so they were going to honor him with a real burial. Uh, And the army was against it. And the last lines Fib says is something like, you know, probably tonight or tomorrow, he'll, you know, get taken by graves registration, and they'll put him in the long assembly line that got him here. Um, So to me, for the GI, the dead body meant both, uh, you know, the abstraction that the army had made him, that he was there, but not there, but at the same time, the deeply personal feelings they felt about each other, um, and their own precarity. So that's why I ended it with that story.
0: Yeah, it was really powerful. Yeah,
1: Yeah, it's a powerful story, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, Lou, we've taken up uh, a lot of your time, and I'm really appreciative. Um, Sure. We end every interview by asking the same question. so I'll ask you, and that is, uh, uh, what are you working on on next?
1: Yeah. Well, actually, I started this book as thinking about doing – the embodied experience of both women and men, because traditionally I'm a gender historian, a women's historian. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I started the, uh, you know, I had the dead body chapter, and then I wrote a a chapter, which I'm uh, pretty much finished about women resistance members in France Mm -hmm. and how they use their bodies as weapons. They weaponized their bodies. Uh, You know, they used it for seduction of German officers to get intelligence. They used um, their bodies to hide documents and hide weapons. Uh, There was one woman who had a bomb in each of her sleeves and her coat, and she just hugged herself the whole time she was on the train so that the bombs wouldn't fall out. Um, So uh, I got really interested in how what I call the female body of war. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then as I started to write this book as well, chapters, I realized this book needs to be its own book, that Mm -hmm. uh, the themes were so different. So now I'm writing the female part uh, of the book, Um, and it's going to be, there's a chapter on Italy, there's a chapter on um, England, and there's a chapter on France. Uh, so, so we'll see how that turns out, but it was a different book, which is why I separated the two.
0: Yeah. Well, that sounds, sounds great. And looking forward to reading that when it comes out. Yeah. So anyways, thank you. Um, thank you very much. And, uh, uh, thank you to the listeners. Bye.
1: Okay. Thank you again for your interest in my work. And the book again is called Sheer Misery and it's sold by the University of Chicago Press. And it's it's only about 150 pages. It's a pretty...
0: <laughs> it is, but it's really fascinating. There's so many great insights. Thanks. Yep. Okay. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye. Bye.